Aw Yeah Comics celebrates and promotes everything that is wonderful about comics, toys, artwork, and the joy they bring to people. Visit them in person at one of their three locations, Harrison, New York, which happens to be my local comic shop, Skokie, Illinois, or Muncie, Indiana. If you have children and have been looking for a family-friendly store, look no further. Join Aw Yeah for exciting events, including creator signings, how-tos, and more. Visit awyeahcomics.com and follow Aw Yeah on social media for more. Their name says exactly how they feel about it. Say it with me. Aw yeah. Acme Comics is a locally owned and operated full-service comic book store in Greensboro, North Carolina for people of all ages and walks of life. Now in its 40th year, this multiple-time Eisner Award nominee features a significant contemporary and vintage back-issue selection. As the Acme team uses their collective knowledge and resources, to connect you with the best material. Mail order subscriptions to new releases are available, and all offerings are available anywhere via mail order. Follow Acme on social media and eBay, listen to the Acme cast on all podcast services, and visit acmecomics.com for much more. Seven decades ago, the first television adaptation of Superman arrived. Now. It's time to rocket back to the 1952-1958 series Adventures of Superman, starring George Reeves. In this rewatch podcast, my guests and I break down each episode, from its black-and-white crime drama beginnings to the kid-friendly color seasons, as we celebrate one of the most underrated Man of Steel depictions of all time. Welcome to another exciting episode in the Adventures of Superman. I'm your host, Anthony Desiato. Joining me to discuss Season 1, Episode 9, Rescue, is one of the hosts of the All-Star Superfan Podcast, Rob O'Connor. Welcome to the show. Thanks very much. Delighted to be here. I'm so happy to have you. A couple episodes ago, we had uh, Tom from the Superboy Legacy uh, page and podcast from England. We had Nathan McKenzie from Superman, the animated podcast in Australia. Now we have you from Ireland. We've really gone international here. I think this is very cool. Around the world with Superman. It's literally the title of an episode of this show. It is. It really is. Speaking of your podcast, All-Star Superfan, I just last night was listening to the two-parter that you and your co-host Alan did on Panic in the Sky, like the most famous Adventures of Superman yes. episode, as well as its tellings in comics and elsewhere on television, including Lois and Clark and Superboy. I really enjoyed it. I hope that people of this podcast will check out your show generally and and maybe those two episodes in particular, if they're fans of the George Reeve show, that could be a great jumping on point for them. Absolutely. It's it's one of our lower rated episodes. So so thank you for listening. Um, and it's it's one of the earlier ones we did. So it possibly doesn't always give the best kind of representation of, of our of the chemistry and the kind of the the play by play we have now. But I I'm very, very fond of that episode, especially the uh the breakdown we do of Panic in the Sky, where my co-host Alan just loses his mind about the Daily Planet uh, news team not being able to recognize Clark as Superman, even when he's not wearing his glasses, um, which which never really bothered me watching the show, but it really bothered him. <laughs> so it's worth it just for that kind of five minute rant alone. Gotcha. Now, you spoke about this in those episodes, so I, I kind of already know the answer. But for our audience here, what is your history with Adventures of Superman? Yeah, so it's it's interesting. Um, I, I obviously I grew up with Lois and Clark and the Christopher Reeve movies and the animated series and and, and that kind of thing. I didn't. Um, I, I never saw the George Reeve series at all on television. I don't know. Was it just that it wasn't airing at the time? 
or had it not aired in a while. I do know that it definitely aired on the BBC at some point in the in the 50s all the way through to the 80s because lots of uh, British um, creators uh, cite it as being their first version of Superman. I know John Byrne definitely says it in one of the forewords of the, the Man of Steel uh, trade paperbacks. But I certainly never saw saw it. I remember reading in a in a letters page once about Jack Larson showing up in the in the uh, Seinfeld American Express ads as an eight year old, and I was like, "Who's Jack Larson? What what are they talking about?" And so I, the first time I saw it was when the DVDs came out here in Ireland in the mid two thousands, around the time of Superman Returns, and I bought season one, and I just loved it straight away. It it you know I I very quickly fell in love with it, which doesn't always happen with kind of older shows that you go back to and stuff like that. I I especially like season one and two, uh, the grittier feel of season one, and then just sort of the all-American kind of Superman feel of season two. And th- th- there's a lot of fun to be had in the color episodes as well. I, uh, y- you're a while away from this episode, so, so I am going to say, if if you make it as far as Flight to the North, I, I please add, please consider having me back on for that one, because I just think it's an amazing episode. <laughs> All right, listen, um, I'll, I'll make a note on my master Excel spreadsheet. I've got, I've got them all listed there. Yes, it will be a while, but I'll, uh, I'll, I'll put you down for that one. <laughs> you, you know, you're familiar with Flight to the North, obviously, the lemon meringue pie episode. Just Yeah, just generally. It's funny because I've only seen about a quarter of the, the color episode, so I'm far shakier okay. on that. I've seen all of seasons one and two, and of course now I'm, I'm making my way through them again for this podcast, but the color episodes I only really kind of like dabbled in before, and I... I you know, I'm a little nervous about getting to those seasons because like yourself, I love these first two so much mm. and the show changes considerably. But even in the in the selection of color episodes that I watched, even though they're not my favorite episodes of the series, they're, like you said, there is fun to be had and I know we'll get great discussions out of them. So I, yeah. I am looking forward to getting there. Yeah, well, suffice to say that there is an episode where uh, a, a gangster uh, threatens the life of someone over a lemon meringue pie and he has to go to Antarctica to get another pie just like it. And Superman chases after him. But meanwhile, there's another man whose name is also Superman also going to Antarctica. It's just completely off the wall and crazy. And if David Lynch ever made a Superman movie, it would probably be based off Flight to the North. So <laughs> I can't wait for you to get to that one. All right. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll, keep, we'll keep an eye out <laughs> for, for that one. Do you remember what yeah. season that is? <laughs> Oh, it's it's. I feel like it's season three or four. I, it's not too far into the color episodes, okay. but uh, it's it's very memorable. <laughs> it's it's one of the rare color episodes that I would actually go back and rewatch. So, gotcha. That's how memorable it is. And look, though, I, it's interesting. Is when when we get to those color years, they're going to go a lot faster because there were only thirteen per season instead that's of these right. twenty six episode seasons that we're working with now. So, uh, yeah, well, that's something for <laughs> for us to look forward to right now. We're here to discuss Season 1, Episode 9, again, titled Rescue, written by Monroe Manning, directed by Tommy Carr. This aired on November 14th, 1952. Uh, Let me give my overview of this episode, and then we'll share our thoughts and we'll break it down. An inspector in Carbide, Pennsylvania, shuts down a local mine for safety concerns, but the operator, Pop, ignores the warning. On his way down to the D.C. office of the Daily Planet, Clark drops Lois off in Carbide to report on the mining operation. While Lois is there... Pop is trapped in a cave-in. Despite a robust rescue effort from the townspeople and clear instructions not to interfere, Lois sneaks in to rescue Pop and finds herself trapped as well. Meanwhile, in a farcical series of near misses, Clark remains unaware of the danger to Lois until he finally arrives at the mine, after which Superman leaps into action. 
I got to tell you, man, I'm coming in a little hot on this one. I had a lot of problems with this episode. And for anyone who who loves or even likes this episode, awesome. I never, ever want to take away from that. I take no delight in coming in and and sharing problems that I had with it. But I really, I struggled with this episode. But I'll toss it to you first. What were your overall impressions of this? Well, I mean, it it it's very much a meat and potatoes episode that there, there's no nothing particularly memorable in it i i will say i liked that there was no kind of mobster of the week it's very much it, the, the title of the episode is rescue and it's all about a, a super save as such that there's no kind of uh villain it's it's all about sort of superman trying to trying to find and help these people i i absolutely get where you're coming from there's a lot of really bizarre contrivances and kind of dated moments and pacing issues and uh Forgetting that Superman has certain powers, which I always love. Um, but I, you know, I can't say that I didn't have fun. That there are far, far worse episodes in the color era. Put it that way. Okay, fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> I, what, what can I say positive about this episode? I really, I really was rooting for those rescue workers. I felt like out of everyone in the episode, Pop, Lois, Clark, and and the rescue team the rescue team really uh really made a positive impression on me I, that's who i was behind really for this episode M- mostly everyone else kind of frustrated me but i liked i liked the inspector and and the other miners and i did think just from a you know like a set design perspective i liked what they were able to bring to life in that mine you know when lois and pop are in there and you know there's all the rubble and the dust and then the gas that starts seeping in you know, you really felt like you were in that with them. And so I thought that was cool. That that would definitely be a high point for me for this episode. I, I've actually written down nice mine production design because uh, usually in, in shows from back then, Star Trek especially, there's a lot of spooky caves that just look like a back lot. You know, that this does look like a mine. And when the, the cave-in starts, it's it's fairly convincing. So I definitely agree that that, that is, you know, one of the things they got right was they made it look like a mine and they... They convinced me that it was caving in. So, yes, I like yourself. I do like just the the big picture premise, like you said, of not having a mobster of the week, but really just more of a natural disaster sort of scenario. I, I do think the idea was cool. I just had a lot of problems with how this was realized, and I, I'm sure you've you've seen this one. I don't know how well you remember, although it is a pretty standout episode. But Night of Terror, a few episodes earlier, do you remember that one? I can't say that I do. No. What? Which one is that? Name? That's totally fine. That's the one where uh, Lois is at the motel and she and the innkeeper are held hostage by the mobsters. And a lot of the episode deals with getting the information of regarding her location to Clark. And we have Miss Backrack, yes. the inept uh, secretary at the Daily Planet who, you know, loses the message and there's a lot of back and forth. It reminded me of that in the sense that Lois is in danger and it's really just a matter of timing, of getting the information mm. to Clark. Once he has that information, the episode is going to be done. So it's like, what's what's happening to sort of delay that? And there, like here, it, it does get farcical, but I don't know, there was enough. I felt like that episode and we covered that a couple a couple you know weeks ago. Did a better job of just building the tension, and I feel mm. like uh, engendering more sympathy toward Lois and the situation she was in. There was more going on. There was this whole bit about Jimmy being mistaken for uh, this hitman, uh, Babyface Stevens. Like there were a lot of great bits in there. Oh, I do remember Babyface Stevens. Now that you say, it. does 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 Jimmy do a mobster voice at some point? Yeah. 
Yeah, there we go. Yeah. Now, it, it's interesting that you, you pointed out, you know, that the whole thing of Clark needing to realize that someone needs to be rescued. Um, definitely on one of the DVD sets for this series uh, that, that, that they brought back an actual writer from the show who must have been in the 70s or 80s by the time they filmed this. And he pointed out that that was kind of the linchpin of the formula was they could never really put Superman in danger because he can survive anything. So they always had to put Lois and or Jimmy in danger. And the challenge as a writer was finding ways for Superman not to find out straight away. Um, which, you know, I, I don't think I ever realized that watching the show until I heard this writer say it and then you can't ever unsee it. And it's it's kind of a trope that survived into obviously later Superman shows, but then also other kind of, especially kind of 90s action procedural shows like Walker, Texas Ranger and Buffy the Vampire Slayer, especially the kind of season one. There's lots of episodes where, you know, Xander or Willow will will get in a spot of bother and she'll get, you know, she, she'll be in a taxi on the way or something and the car will break down. And, you know, they always find ways to prevent the hero from getting to the scene of the crime, because once they get there, the shit that the, the episode is over, the story is kind of has unfolded, you know. So it's interesting. I, I, I almost feel like maybe that trope started with this show. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, may maybe, maybe. I well let's let's talk about the Clark of it all first, and then we can we can go back to Lois and, mm. and the mine and all of that, because definitely have a lot to say on that front as well. But uh you know, <laughs> one thing that I was interesting to me about this is I, I'm always fascinated with the show with respect to what we don't see, like what happens between mm. the scenes and, and off screen. So there's the Washington DC office of the Daily Planet. It's like, what goes on there? I would love to spend some more yeah. time at the DC office. And and Clark goes there and he's talking with one of the editors there and talking about how, I guess he, he went to interview someone and didn't get, you know, uh, you know what, what he was hoping to out of the interview. And uh, the editor- How'd you make out, Ken? Exactly. And, uh, you know, that the editor, you know, invites him to, you know, to go to the press club with him. And Clark's like, no, I have an errand to run. It's like, what's his errand? Well, like, what business does he have in DC? Did he did he hear someone in trouble and he was going off as Superman? We don't really get that sense, but it's like, what's his errand? Again, I know it's just a little throwaway line, but it's just like the like the private life of Clark Kent. What what is this guy up to? Because there are other episodes, and we haven't really gotten to them yet. But uh, I remember from watching uh, these first couple of seasons, instances where he knows someone, whether it's like a Navy admiral or, or scientist or whatever, but it's like, we've never seen the initial meeting. And you watch the the origin episode, Superman on Earth. It's it's not like other iterations of the character where he has this long period traveling the world. You know, he basically goes from Smallville to Metropolis. It's like, well, yeah. when and where and how is he meeting all these people? Like, I'm fascinated by that. Have, have you gotten to the stolen costume yet? No. So that's midway through season one. So we're just a few episodes away. That is, I'm very excited to do that one. Okay. Well, without giving too much away, it is definitely one of the best episodes. There is a character in that called Candy Myers, who is kind of a a private eye and him and Clark are said to be these, you know, long-standing friends and you never really see the meat or anything like that. They're just friends straight away, exactly like what you're saying. And it implies that there's this whole rich history that we haven't seen. And what I would what I would advise you do when you go to watch that episode is go back and listen to the radio show, because that's where they interview that they introduce Candy Myers and they introduce a lot of these kind of, you know, friends of Clark Kent that he has and stuff like that. And I often feel like the George Reeves show was kind of writing the episodes as if it was a continuation of the radio show in a lot of ways. And there's a lot of kind of implied history there that you're supposed to know things that might have happened in the radio show. And then in some cases, like the stolen costume, 
it's just literally an adaptation of something they did on the radio show. So so they just brought over the script wherein it was an established thing that he was friends with Kanye. So it's a, so I think it's a bit of that, you know. Um, Superman was was in the public consciousness for a long time, and and especially on the radio show, you know, he was engendering all these relationships and stuff like that, and they just didn't have time to get to it on the show, so they just skipped ahead, you know. But no, I, absolutely, like that. There's this whole kind of lived-in world of Metropolis that we don't really see and we don't really get a full sense of. And yeah, no, it's 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 really interesting. I love that about the show. That's a great tip, though. I appreciate that. It's. It's interesting. So on, on my other show, Digging for Kryptonite, a big part of that show is is my closing gaps in my Superman fandom, right? Because as much as I've been reading and watching this stuff for most of my life, there's there still was mm. a lot that I had not really, really experienced. And now I've closed many of those gaps. The radio show still remains a, a pretty open one. Like I, I did listen to Clan of the Fiery Cross. We did an episode yeah. on that. And of course, that's you know an, an iconic story. And, and I'm glad that I was able to experience that. But you know, there are thousands of radio show episodes. So there's, there's a lot to mine, but I appreciate that tip. I will definitely do that, uh, during my prep for the stolen costume. And it'll, I'll be curious to see how that, you know, then colors the way I see that dynamic between Clark and Candy in the show. Nice. Yeah. It's, it's in, the same way kind of the Christopher Reeve movies have had this huge impact on all the kind of other media versions of Superman we've had since. Uh, I think the radio show was very much like that, you know, it, the, the Kirk Allen serials and then to some extent, this show were far more. They they were taking their lead from that more so, I think, than than the comics at that at that point in time. So you know, it, it's interesting. That, that there's always kind of that problem with Superman where they, they kind of take the lead from the other media versions rather than strictly the comics themselves. That's why, especially on our show, we we don't even really consider Superman to be a comic character the way Spider Man is. You know, he he has such, like Jimmy Olsen comes from the radio show. Kryptonite comes from the radio show. Perry White comes from the newspaper strip. Like there's all these different, different things feeding into the mythos. So it's, it's not just this one thing, you know? That's a, that's an excellent point. I agree wholeheartedly. And this was actually something that I think just came up in our last episode when we did the mind machine, because I, this is something that I, I reflect on, especially when I did sort of my, like my golden age deep dive on the other show uh, a little while back where Superman had permeated all these different forms of media so early. Mm. It is not like Spider-Man where you have so many years where it's primarily the comics and then it explodes yeah. into the movies and everything like that. You know, with Superman, you had so much in the, with the theatrical, uh, you know, the, the animation and the movie serials and then this mm. show and the radio and the newspaper strips. Like there was so much and so early. So I think you're, I, you're right. I, I think that is a, a valid way to look at the character for sure. So speaking of Clark, Again, we mentioned him being at the DC office of the Daily Planet. We're, do, we're doing anything to avoid talking about this episode. <laughs> <laughs> and there are, I would say, I guess, three main instances where he almost, almost gets the information he needs. As he's leaving the office, we have the message coming through the telegraph, I suppose, right? About mm. the, the cave-in and reporter Lois Lane being trapped. But he's already left. He's like, just walked out as this is coming in. And then... I don't know how much longer this is supposed to be, how much later it's supposed to be. You don't get the sense that much time has passed, but he's outside the building getting into his car like a scene or two later. And right as he gets in and drives off, we get the stack of newspapers delivered. And the big headline is all about the, the cave-in. So that's miss number two. Uh, small bit of trivia. Did you notice the newspaper prop that he picks up? No, I don't think I did. So the newspaper 
prop he picks up says uh, rope burglar strikes again which is uh used in the stolen costume and actually sets up uh the guy who steals superman's costume at the start of the episode he's he's climbing a rope and you see that uh that prop kind of fill the screen it says rope burglar strikes again so i'm guessing that stolen costume may have been filmed prior to this and they they still had the prop oh nice catch oh that's that's great no thank you for pointing that out that's a great catch i like that nice to have that's the thing you don't get a lot of tie-ins in these episodes so even something as small as that is pretty cool you see that a lot in lois and clark that there was this one uh newspaper prop they had in season one about fruit fry fruit fly spraying and it it pops up in in every season of that show and you're just like did they just have loads of this one prop lying around it's funny i i always like when that happens Yes, no, very much so. The the third and I think most egregious instance of the near miss is as Clark is driving back to Carbide and has some car trouble and, and gets out and pops the hood. And while he's working on the car, the radio is playing, right? And it mentions this cave-in. And right as the radio report mentions Lois, he's revving the engine, right? And he misses the part about Lois. Now, Let's put the super hearing aside for a second here. I had a large, <laughs> I, I had a more fundamental problem and correct. I might, maybe I'm misremembering this. Maybe I got the timing wrong. So correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm almost positive that it unfolded the way I just described where he's not revving the engine during the part about the cave in generally. It's only during yes. the part with Lois. Why does he not care about the cave in? It's only, <laughs> it's only, and even I want to skip ahead for a second, but when he shows up, at the mine and he sees all of this commotion this guy walks up as cavalier as can be it's like buddy take a look around clearly this is a dire situation and it's only when they mention lois that he's like what so yeah <laughs> did you have an issue with this or or, or not i don't know <laughs> I, I i did have an issue with that my, my only assumption because i've watched the episode twice now and on the second viewing i kind of thought well do they say that there are people trapped in the mine or do they just say that there's been a cave-in that was the only thing in in his defense, but but to your point, it, it's it's one of those real bugbears I have in different iterations of Superman, where he has this real Lois bias, where you know he's always saving Lois, but Superman's supposed to always save everybody. Like I think there's a line in uh, World's Finest, the otherwise excellent uh, animated crossover where he meets Batman, and there's a bit at the start where the terrorists are, are on Air Force One, and Lois says, "Oh, I'm Lois Lane," and he goes. You mean the one Superman always saves and then Superman shows up and you're like, well, surely Superman would have showed up anyway. I don't know. But yeah, no, I, I definitely did think that. But I think the super hearing is it's the bigger issue here. I, I don't know. Is is there any way we could account for this? I mean, I guess you could say he, I don't know. He wasn't, you know, he wasn't dialed in, right? We know he can, mm. he can yeah. tune out, he can focus. So I guess he was just really focused on that car at the moment. I don't know. That was a t- I was a tough one to get past. I really uh, I really had an issue with that. But it it, it is what it is. I the there's there's one more piece with Clark that um again, this feeds into my larger frustration with this episode where I just feel like there are certain things that could have been remedied rather easily. And I just find some of the creative choices like kind of baffling. And this last thing mm-hmm. that I'm going to mention is is a great example of it where once Clark realizes that Lois is in the mine, he runs off behind a boulder, right? <laughs> I've written this down. And everyone's watching him. Yeah. <laughs> and then, of course, seconds later, Superman flies in. And I'm just saying to myself, look, 
there's a suspension of disbelief. We all have to, yeah. we all have to buy in. And, and, and we do as Superman fans, we do, but I feel like there's an unspoken agreement here. It's like, don't go out of your way to make it so unbelievable. And it's just like, why? <laughs> I told you I was coming in hot on this. Why have everyone watching him? Right. Yeah, it's, it's a weird edit. It's, it's a, there was no need to cut to them looking in that direction. <laughs> it's so strange. And then when Superman shows up, they all say, Superman, where did he come from? And you're like, you literally just saw where he came from. <laughs> he came from the same direction where Clark can't run off to. It's, it's, it's bizarre. And it could have so easily been saved by just doing a shot where they were clearly looking at the mine instead. And then using, you, you know, the, it, it was totally... Just a disastrous edit there. <laughs> but to your point, that's the thing. And that's what got me was that it wouldn't have taken much, right? Exactly what you described. Mm -hmm. Or maybe, I don't know, maybe a rock, another rock falls and they all turn to look at the cave just as this is happening. And then Clark runs off. Or maybe Clark says, oh, I got to go run back into town. Like, and he gets yeah. in the car. A anything. It, it was, uh, it, it was just so odd. I mean, it was, it was really comical. The idea that, they're all watching especially, him and not realizing. Especially because later in the episode, Superman does a great job of sneaking away unnoticed. Yes. <laughs> so it's like, and that's the lesser of the two. Like, you know, if no matter what direction Superman flies in, Clark walking back onto the scene isn't going to look suspicious. But the other way around, <laughs> you know? Right. It's very, very strange. That's a great, that's a great point though. And that was something that I did like in that final scene where Superman does... You know, everyone's focused on on Lois and Pop, and you see him start to slide back, and like that was great. That's what we needed in this earlier scene. So, mm. I, again, the Clark of it all really, uh, really frustrated me. But that's nothing compared to Lois. <sighs> all right, so as the greatest rescue worker in the <laughs> history of mining, <laughs> the, the the best rescue worker of the twentieth century. Because, you know, did, did we have rescues as epic as we've had in the 21st century? I don't know. <laughs> I'm, not an ex and I'm not an expert on cave-ins, but she, she's very, very effective in her, in her rescue work. Yeah. Let me, let me ask you the, the big picture question that I have, and then we'll get more specific about Lois's mm. choices in this. But specifically with, with both Lois and Pop, right, I, I really felt like this episode did not cultivate any real sympathy on the audience's part toward them. Did you feel, I mean, of course, look, Lois is, is, is one of our central characters. Of course you want her to be okay. But did, I, I really feel like the episode, you really had to work hard, I, I feel like, to feel some sympathy mm -hmm. for either of these characters. How did you feel watching this? Yeah, I agree because, you know, she, she just runs in with, with total disregard to, you know, the, the authority and the wisdom of these, you know, why doesn't she just listen to them and let them do their job? I don't know. And again, an easy fix, you know, that, that they, they lean on this trope a lot in, I think, this show and definitely in later Superman shows. Why not make Pop her uncle? You know, Uncle Pop. The, the easy, you know, so then there's an emotional attachment. She's not thinking clearly. She runs in, you know, that, that that's an easy way out. In terms of Pop, yeah, absolutely no sympathy. And, and God bless this actor. He sounds like he might have had a couple of brandies before he showed up on set. And, and that doesn't really help either. He, he's kind of, his, his, some of his words are a bit slurred and, and he's kind of gargling when he speaks nearly. So it, it doesn't help matters what, you know, when he sounds a little bit drunk and then he's talking about how safe the mine is. You're just like, no, sorry. Um, I, I was wondering at the, and the end of the episode, you know, 
is this guy going to jail? Because, you know, he put, a pe- he put a lot of people's lives in danger, including his own. So, yeah, no, sympathy-wise, I don't know. I mean, he, he, he was kind of an adorable old man. Like, he didn't want to see any harm come to him, even if he was really stupid and irresponsible. Uh, but no, yeah, definitely. And, and, and Lois, I, yeah, I don't know. Like, why, why did she care so much about this man's safety that she was with? Like, it, even, even if there'd been a line where she kind of said, oh, well, I got to get the story, <laughs> you know, you know, one-on-one interview with this man who's about to die in a mine. Perfect. Front page news, you know, that there wasn't even that. It was, it was just her with a hero complex for this man she never met. It was odd. I, I co-sign on all of that. So with respect to Pop, yeah, I mean, he, he's told by the inspector right at the top of the episode, this mine isn't safe. The inspector shuts it down, puts the sign up. Pop instantly tears it down, tries to rope in another poor miner to go in. And the guy's like, well, I got a family. I can't be involved in this. And so, you know, Pop goes in by himself and gets stuck. And look, you, you don't want to, it's not like, oh, he deserves it. And you, you don't want to see him die. But at the mm. same time, you disregarded safety instructions and you put yourself in this position so it's kind of hard and i guess with both characters again just kind of odd creative choices to me because i feel like there are various Mm -hmm. things they could have done to make this more believable more reasonable to engender more sympathy you know with pop even if we had gotten any kind of a line about he's in dire financial straits this is the only thing like he has to something like that and you could fill in the blanks on your own but i don't feel we should have to necessarily Filmmakers and movie fans alike should be sure to attend these film festivals. Brightside Tavern in Jersey City, Hang On to Your Shorts in Asbury Park, Point Lookout on Long Island, and In the Cut in Bloomfield, New Jersey. On a personal note, my short film, By Spoon, The J. Mizell Story, played at these fests, so I know firsthand what fun and well-run events they are. Submission information for filmmakers, as well as details about the festivals, can be found at filmfreeway.com. Follow the festivals on social media for news about events, discounts, tickets, and more. Also, listen to the Hang On To Your Shorts and Cullen On Film podcasts, available via a shared universe network. This episode made possible in part by educator, hobby comic book collector, and pop culture enthusiast, Sam Lim. Sam just moved to the South Jersey area and is looking to connect with other comics fans as well as retailers. They are also looking for comic shops to explore so recommendations are welcome. Be sure to follow Sam on Instagram at SZL Comics. Fat Moose Comics is New Jersey's best and oldest comic book store. Established in 1982 and under new ownership since 2020, Moose sells a wide selection of new and old comics from every publisher, action figures, graphic novels, posters, statues, and more. If you're looking for something and they don't have it, they can probably get it for you. They know a guy. Visit Fat Moose in Whippany, New Jersey the next time you're in the Garden State. And be sure to reach out via the Fat Moose Comics Facebook page. With Lois, so you brought up a great point about how, you know, it would have made more sense if she were chasing the story. And that's the thing, because I I feel like this kind of cuts both ways. I feel like someone could sit here and say, hey, we really like that it wasn't about a story for her. She just wanted Mm. to save this guy. But to your point, you have all of these rescue workers and there's nothing, you know, they talk about they need to wait, what, 24 hours, however long it is. It, it's, they can't just rush in because it's the risk of the further cave-in and they have their whole procedure that they have to follow and then later they try to go in another mm. way. It's a whole thing. But there's nothing to indicate that their recommendations, that their course of action is, is unreasonable. 
And that's where mm. I feel like this really breaks down. And like you said, there are ways around this. You could have made it that, again, Lois had a personal connection to Pop. You could make it this was her hometown. You know, I know there's another yeah. episode coming up where, you know, she, she does, you know, we go to her hometown, I believe. But, you know, they could have done something like that. They could have made it that, I don't know, she spent summers with family members who mined and she had like some kind of background and, and there was some basis for her refusing to follow the directions, but you didn't get mm. any of that. And it's just so, so reckless. And it's just like, what, what gives you the right? Like what, why, <laughs> what makes you think you, you know better? I don't know. It was just, it was frustrating. But, but what was more frustrating for me was that according to the episode and the events that unfold, she actually does know better because she finds him successfully. I <laughs> You know, she, she she succeeds where, you know, what looked like over 30 rescue workers failed in that she's able to, like, slither her way in and find him. And the only reason that things go horribly wrong is because she tries to use one of the, clearly, the, the beam that's supporting the whole entryway. She tries to use that to pry up the, the rock that's, you know, keeping him pinned to the ground. If she hadn't done that, she probably would have been able to kind of get this guy to safety or at least bring the other workers in whatever route she took. That was my, I, I've, you know, again, I've seen the episode twice. The second time, it just suddenly hit me out of nowhere. There's like 30 rescue workers here and, and Lois Lane, you know, this girl reporter from Metropolis is able to just succeed and, and make her way in. And they're just all outside eating sandwiches. I, I made a note, by the way, there's this craft services table outside the, uh, did you notice this? No. There's a scene where I think Lois is talking to the foreman or whatever it is. And behind both of the actors, there is a woman with kind of flasks of coffee and she's giving out sandwiches to all the workers. And there's all these guys just sitting around having a little snack, like, like it's a regular day at the office. <laughs> a man is about to die and they're just there munching away like it's like it's casual Friday. I, I thought that was very funny. Uh, well, maybe I should then retract what I said earlier about the rescue workers really being the, yeah. only, uh, <laughs> the only heroes to root for. And this, although, uh, you look, maybe they had the same thought process that we just did about Pop. It's like this guy got himself into this mess. Yeah. But you're right. Like That's the thing with Lois where she proves herself to be surprisingly capable in getting in and locating Pop. But then, like you said, <laughs> it's like in, in what world do you look at? What's clearly a support beam? I'd be like, oh, I'll yeah. use this. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I, like I said, and I don't, I don't want to belabor the point, but I just feel like a lot of these things could have been avoided. It, it's And I, I just, I'm kind of curious how we landed where we did because with a few, not, not even a radical overhaul of the episode, but I think just a few tweaks with respect to these things that we've mentioned would have made, just would have made it a lot more believable. So. I don't know. And as far as the rescue itself, you know, of course we get, you know, Superman in the mind and he holds it up while, uh, you know, uh, Lois and Pop are, are able to get out of there. Uh, what did you think of Lois's final line after uh, Clark, Clark shows up? Uh, I, I'll, I'll foreshadow this by saying Phyllis Coates is my favorite Lois of the two. I, and I, I, by quite a considerable margin, by the way, I, I think she's quite a bit better than Noelle Neal. And no disrespect to Noelle Neal, like she was an amazing ambassador for the role. She was great to the fans. She went to thousands of conventions over the years, amazing stuff. But like they definitely leaned in a very different direction with Lois after season one. And I, I think it was a huge mistake and a shame because Phyllis Coates was so great and she really paved the path for Margot Kidder and Terry Hatcher. Uh, but yeah, strange final line. She says, hey, Clark, 
Superman finally took me out. And uh, the second time I watched this, I was watching it with my fiance, Saoirse, who has suffered through too many hours of Superman shows over the years. And I could just hear her voice go, oh, <laughs> just with disgust at the kind of chauvinism. And, you know, there's already a bit of kind of misogyny in this episode anyway. Like when Clark drops her off at the foreman's office and both Clark and the foreman are, are kind of talking about Lois like she's a child. You know, it's like, OK, Lois, you go off and enjoy yourself and get your little story. And then the foreman turns to her and goes, so, Miss Lane, what kind of story do you want? And you, you can see the revulsion on Phyllis Coates' face. Um, so to have her have to deliver a line like that at the end, yeah, it was it was a definite groaner. And one of the weird things about season one, specifically season one of the show, is, you know, usually when you have a final line like that, they, they play a jaunty little bit of music at the end to, to kind of cap off the episode. For whatever reason, in season one, they always just end with complete silence. And it just makes it even more kind of like, like at least if there was an old kind of silly little bit of music, you might be able to kind of laugh along with it. Oh, it's the 50s. You know, it's so long ago. Let's not judge it too harshly. But but in, in the presence of just that cold, eerie silence, you're just like, I don't like this. Uh, I'm with you. And it, we're nine episodes in. I have to go back and check the tape. But I believe that every guest who has come on and myself as well as, as host have expressed a preference for Phyllis Coates. What's funny is every time someone says it, it's always with everyone always pays respect to Noel Neal and everyone's always not, not, I'm not afraid to voice it, but it's always like, mm. because Noel Neal has such a revered space in, in the show and the mythology, you know, I think everyone is always delicate in the way they voice his opinion, but you're not alone. I mean, again, I, I yeah. think this is a, a common theme and especially now as I'm rewatching this, I, I, I do vastly prefer the the toughness that she brought to it. And but that's what made that last line even feel feel even more out of yeah. place given this incarnation of Lois. And this is not I don't know, I don't feel like we've gotten much in these episodes that would really kind of justify yeah. her expressing that at the end. So it felt it, in a season two or certainly the color season episodes, I think this would have felt perfectly of of a piece. But here it, it felt very out of place. It's it's absolutely a, a Noel Neal season three or four kind of line, you know, and 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 Jimmy would be beside her, kind of guffawing as she said it. Yeah. Speaking of Jimmy, there's no Jimmy, no Perry, no Inspector Henderson. This is strictly a no. Lois and Clark episode. Yeah, but very very odd. I I feel like that was kind of a thing in season one. You know, you, the the haunted lighthouse is that another one where it's literally just Superman and Jimmy, and there's no mm -hmm. uh, is Clark is Clark even in that episode? I'm trying to remember. Yes, Clark is in that episode because okay. Jim calls Clark and uh, says that he needs help, and then you know Clark shows up on on the on Moose Island like you know ten minutes later. He's like, how'd you get here so fast? And then later, of course, changes into Superman. So yeah, we do get, but it's not until about halfway through the episode that you even see Clark. Mm, true. Yeah, yeah. In that one. I, I I have to add, by the way, just totally out of context, it would be remiss of me to come on a George Reeves rewatch show and not do my impression of Jack Larson in Panic of the Sky when he arrives into Clark Kent's apartment and says, Mr. Kent, I've got the coffee and sandwiches. Because I'm just obsessed with the way Jack Larson says sandwiches. It's so strange. Dude, me too. No, me too. God bless that man. <laughs> yeah, there's, I, there's always something, and that episode in particular, when he talks about going to get the coffee and sandwiches, and then when he comes back with the coffee and sandwiches, and and even too, and I know I'm maybe I'm really nitpicking here, but it was just like the, I, it's been a little while since I watched it, but the bag that he brings out, brings back, mm. it's like, 
you have cups of coffee in a bag? I mean, I, <laughs> you know, they, bag, have a, yeah. they have a lid. You can, but I, I've never transported coffee that way. I wouldn't, you know, I, again, I know it's just a prop, but it, it always makes me laugh. <laughs> Actually, if you, if you get coffee delivered to you, they, they give it to you in a bag, which it's, it's kind of reminiscent of that. But yeah, it is very, very strange. It's like the sandwiches and the coffee are in the same bag and he lifts it out almost like it's a bucket of coffee or, or like soup rather than coffee. It's right. just, it's a century ago, you know, you got to give it to me. But I, yeah, I love that moment. Yeah, it is great. So yeah, we don't, you know, we don't have uh, most of our cast for, for this episode. Of course, we have uh, our, our two central characters, but yeah, not a ton of interaction, right? They're really remote for, for most of it, you know, kind of off on their own. I, we haven't even hit the 40 minute mark. I don't really know that I have much more to say about this episode. <laughs> we still have to give our overall rating of the episode. We'll get to that. But is there anything we didn't talk about in this rescue episode that, that you wanted to discuss? Uh, w- one other thing, just when Lois is in the kind of enclosed part of the cave with Pops and uh, she goes to get the support beam, uh, she she realizes that the thing is about to cave in a full second and a half before it actually does. And she ducks down and, uh, you know, you, you know, you can't blame Phyllis Coates for this. Obviously something went wrong with whatever special effect they were using to cause the cave in. Um, but by God, man, just do another take. <laughs> you, you know, were, were they under such time and money pressure that they couldn't just go back and do that again? Like it, she, she ducks down a second, a beat passes and then the dust starts falling and the things start. I, I just, it really stood out to me. I was like, and again, it's an editing thing. It's just cut, cut to a shot of pops just going, <gasps> and then you just cut back to her ducking in the whole cave. You know, it, it's peculiar. Um, I, I feel like so much of what we talked about here tonight has less to do with the script. And there's definitely a lot of problems with the script, but I feel like it's direction and editing are the main kind of flaws here. And and if you tweaked little parts of those, then maybe this would have made a lot more sense. Um, or, or or at least wouldn't have been quite as ridiculous. But, um, you know, in, in general, I, I I try not to be... I, I And if you listen to our show, I can be very, very harsh about Superman shows, um, especially especially the newer ones, like even Smallville. I, I, I find any time we go back to that, I, I, I get really nitpicky and really irritated by certain things. But... This show is just so old and it, it's literally one of the first television programs. So, you know, with these kind of lapses in logic and everything else and the news team not re- recognizing Clark with his glasses off and things like that, I kind of just approach it as part of the texture of the whole thing. And it, it nearly wouldn't be a special if it wasn't a little bit silly at times, <laughs> you know? That's that's more than fair. And look, like I said at the top, I you know I, I don't want to take away from anyone's enjoyment. If this mm. is a favorite episode of, of anyone who, who's listening or watching to us, that's awesome. Uh, I, I if, if anything though, I, I really I really don't think it's anyone's favorite episode. <laughs> probably not, but yeah, you never know. But but here's the thing, and and to sort of spin this into a positive, I think my frustration with this stems from how much I have enjoyed the other season Everything one episodes, so right? The ones that we've already yeah. covered and, and the ones that I know are still to come. It's, it more stems from that. But I, your, mm. your points are all well taken. It's like, yes, we do have to recognize the the time period, the the limitations in terms of budget and technology that they face. But again, I guess to, like we've been saying, that wasn't even where I felt there was a breakdown in this episode. Like it really was yeah. just in, in, in the things that we've mentioned. So I, again, though, the frustration really comes from knowing how good it can be and how good yes. really for the most part, the episodes that we've been talking about have been. That's where I just feel like I want it to live up to that. But it is what it is. I, it's funny though, when you were talking about how 
you know, a, a little editing could have fixed the scene with with Lois and, the, and that further cave in. I think about that a lot in terms of the stock footage uh, in other episodes of Clark in the Daily Planet building, you know, running into the storage closet, right, to, to change. And he will run out of a scene without his hat. And then they'll cut to the stock footage and his hat will be on and then he'll take off his hat again. <laughs> Love it. And I always said to myself, and again, look, we know the production. We know that they they did not have a lot of time and money. We know how they were filming these episodes in batches and filming, you know, all of the Perry White scenes together and, and, and so on. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I mean, how much time would it have taken to do two versions of that run into the storage closet, one with a hat yeah. and one without. So that way <laughs> you just, you, you, you have a couple of options. I, you know, so to your point, like I, I share that question as well. It's like, if they feel like relatively easy fixes, again, though, I know it's easy for us to say this now, uh, but I don't know, something like that still sticks out to me. And, and on a similar note, how much time would it have taken to have George Reeves lie down on the thing in the other direction so that they could <laughs> film him? Fl- so that then they, they, they didn't have to flop the shot so that the S is the wrong way around when, when they need him flying in the other direction. I always find that so funny. Yes, I, I think that's valid. So again, again, though, people were watching it on TVs that were the size of pencils and you'd never notice that the S was the wrong. You might never notice that he has an S on his chest at all. It's just like this blob, the amorphous blob of, of kind of, I was going to say color, but it wasn't even color. You know, at one stage it was just brown, black, whatever. So. No, that's fair. I mean, and that's come up in the context of, of scenes where it's clearly his stuntman. Right. And we've talked mm. about how again, in terms of the the kinds of devices people were watching these on back in the day, you know, it, it's like it, it certainly wasn't as noticeable, but now, you know, you're watching it in, in higher quality on these big TVs and you're pausing it and you're rewinding it and, yeah. and it, it's, it becomes so much more apparent, but they, that wasn't a concern then. So, I I was thinking about this actually in, in preparation for this. For me, I feel like the George Reeves show, you know, so so, so often we forget that Superman on television and not not animation, specifically live action television, is such a huge, you know, important part of his legacy as a character. And but in so many cases, it, it's treated as this kind of consolation prize that, you know, there's a Superman TV show. Well, I wish there was more Superman movies, but we have this TV show. Yeah, but the special effects aren't as good and the stories and the acting or whatever it is. They're always kind of treated as less than this is. I feel like the George Reeves show is the only example where it was absolutely a step up from the previous version, which was a theatrical version, which was the Kirk Allen serials. And for me, I rewatched those recently and I was there going, you know what, I'm, I'm glad these exist. Even for the time these were made, I don't think they're very good. Like, and I, I watch a lot of old time serials, so I would like to think I have some kind of valid opinion there. Like the, the, the Shazam one. Is, is excellent. I don't know. Have you ever seen the Captain Marvel serial? I haven't seen those. I, I highly recommend going back and watching that. The, the flying in that is genuinely great. And the guy playing Billy Batson is amazing. And the guy playing Captain Marvel. And it's it's loads of fun. And then when you go to watch the Kirk Allen one, you're like, this is just a little bit stiff and a bit wooden. And I can see why they leaned away from all the fantasy type stories in the George Reeves show, because it's just very silly here. The, the 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 you know it switches to an animated Superman when he's flying and it it just it it just doesn't work. Whereas this show, everything every decision they made they made it more grounded. You know the the flying looks very good for the time. Uh, you know George Reeves is a huge step up I think from Kirk Allen, uh, Jack Larson from Tommy Bond. You know uh, 
we, we kind of said it already. Phyllis Coates was a big step up from Noel Neal, you know. So I, I think it's it's one of those rare cases where it's definitely better in every way than the theatrical version. And I, I think so. So even when there's kind of a weaker episode, you know, compare that to Superman versus the Spider Lady. <laughs> you know, it's like, I don't know, I, I'll take this episode over that any day. I, I agree with that. I, I had a similar experience, but probably around the same time as you of watching the Kirk Allen serials really not too long ago. And yeah, I, you know, respect what they did and, and that this was the first live action incarnation of the character. So, you know, credit where credit's due, but yeah, they were tough to get through now in fairness. And I talked about this, we did an episode on digging for kryptonite about it, where I binged it and these were not meant to be yeah. binged at all. There's, nope. it gets very repetitive and it, but I was just, I was like in a time warp watching these things I, mm. I, and it, it got very tough to get through. And, and on the note of Kirk Allen, yeah, I, I agree. It, it really gave me watching those serials gave me even more love for George Reeves and adventures of Superman because you know, I'm essentially wearing the same costume, but the presence yeah. The presence and the charm and that magic that George Reeves has is like you just you believe him as the character in a way that I there are things I really do like about Kirk Allen's performance, but I could never get past the fact that when he's in that costume, it just looks like a guy running around in a Superman costume. And when George Reeves shows up in the costume, it's like, oh, it's Superman. So it, it really it really made me appreciate Reeves even more. Yeah, I mean, a a lot of people have pointed out, you know. Christopher Reeve, you will believe a man can fly. Whereas with George Reeves, I believe that he could, you know, run through a brick wall. And, you know, he just has that stature and that sort of charisma about him that you believe he is incredibly powerful, even though there really aren't a lot or any special effects in the show. He's kind of just running into things and punching things. And he just has this kind of presence of power about him. Um, and, And the way he runs just has this sort of godliness about it. And even just the 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 kind of sheer energy in his voice. He just has that booming kind of thunderous voice. And he has all that authority about him. Like he really, really was the right man for the job. And, you know, for, for all the kind of problems he may have had outside the series and, you know, you, you can, you can suggest maybe that that was kind of apparent in his appearance as the show went on, but it definitely wasn't apparent in his performance because he always gave it a hundred percent. And, you know, he, he is, and he's such a different kind of flavor of Superman. You know, I, I think, you know, a lot of people will say if, if you don't like this version or you don't like that version, it's just because you grew up with the Christopher Reeve movies and, you know, that's the version you like and you think everything should be like that. And I'm like, well, George Reeves is so different to Christopher Reeve and I love him too. So, you know, that kind of way, it's, it's such a different flavor. It's very much, and and, and sorry if I'm rambling here, it's just, this is so, such a more interesting conversation than than talking about this episode. But I always think that even though this came out in the height of the Silver Age, it's it's very much a Golden Age Superman show. I don't know how you feel about that. Oh, I agree completely, especially especially the first two, and in particular this first season. It's and mm. I know you guys talked about it on on your show too, but this Superman engages in fisticuffs with with yeah. the bad guys, and, <laughs> and putting aside the the physics of all of this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's, it's it's such a different way of seeing the character move and act and interact and mix it up with, you know, we see him fighting mm. super powered adversaries, but not, not the, the crooks and gangsters of the week. And it's just, it has this visceral, powerful action to it. It's, it's really cool. I do. I, as the series drags on though, I'm always kind of like, would it have been so hard just to say that, you know, 
mobster of the week has a serum and he has superpowers too. And, you know, like they seem so utterly resistant to do any kind of science fiction at all. <laughs> and sometimes I'm kind of like, you know, even the Adam West Batman had UFOs in one episode. You know, it's like it wouldn't have been that hard to, you know, maybe there's a robot that Superman can throw down with or something like that, you know. That, that that's my only thing is that they always seem to come back to gangsters every single episode and I, I i don't know was was that part of a you know was it something to do with things being suitable for children you know they, they, they didn't want children to be distrustful of mad or scientists or you know that they, they that organized crime was the controversy of the day and and that's what kids should be afraid of and, and that's all we're doing here you know um, that that's my only larger kind of criticism of the show is that they never really pushed the boat out beyond kind of mobsters and confidence men and people trying to steal lemon meringue pies. Um, but, you know, again, 70 years ago, they, they, they did a pretty good job as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, look, we're still talking about it. And a lot of it still does does hold up in a lot of ways. And, oh, 100%. It's funny, they're like, oh, you know, that they always go back to gangsters. Well, like this was one episode where they didn't. And <laughs> they yes. would have been better off. Yeah, no, that's not where this episode fell apart. But uh, so what we haven't done yet is give our rating. So I, I use a fedora rating system here. Oof, so I like it. out of five fedoras, one being the worst, five being the best, and halves are are okay. We also had uh, our guest last time, Craig Byrne from Krypton site. He uh, rather than giving a, a half, he he did a hat and a or a hat and a tie. He started bringing in other articles of clothing. So there, there's some room to maneuver here. But generally speaking, on a scale of one to five fedoras, how many would you give this one? Mm, um, I will give this. Two fedoras and a redundant pair of glasses, uh, but purely because Phyllis Coates just instantly elevates every episode she's in. And, you know, anytime she was on screen, even I, you know, I mentioned that scene at the start where Clark and the foreman are just talking about her like she's seven years old. And you can just see her like glancing at both of them going, oh, these guys, you know, whereas if that was Noelle Neal, she'd probably just be smiling along with it. You know, so she just she elevates, she brings something extra to every episode she's in. So I'll give her the redundant pair of glasses just for that. All right, very nice. I I won't be quite as generous. Uh, this might be a little oh, harsh, but I'm going to go one and a half. I'll go one and a half. Okay. I I really, I'll be honest. I I really did not enjoy the the viewing of this. Certainly not the way that I have uh, of the other one. So my honest ranking would be would be one and a half fedoras. So. I don't think there will be many others in this first season that get that. We'll we'll see. Um, I remember most of them like fairly well, so I, I think others <laughs> will be higher. And certainly the past ones have been. So I'll go one and a half for this. Here's the thing, and and this is not exclusive to this podcast, but even other shows. You know, even if I don't enjoy what I even if I totally enjoy what I read or watched for whatever we're going to talk about, I always enjoy the discussion, and that sort of makes the mm. whole thing even more worthwhile. So. I thank you for taking the time to watch and take notes and come on and discuss. And, uh, you know, we were talking off mic as much as we've, you know, interacted on social media. This is the first time you and I've actually spoken. Uh, so I'm yeah. glad that we were able to connect. And for people who want to check out the all-star super fan podcast, where would you like to direct them? Yeah. So you can find us pretty much anywhere you get your podcasts. Um, uh, George Reeves has has definitely featured in our show before. Uh, kind of the the various television iterations of Superman have been a big part of of what we've looked at. But we've also interviewed some of the the, the great comic creators. We interviewed Mark Ray, Mark Wade, James Mateus, uh, Dan uh, Ribba 
from uh, Superman the Animated Series who spoke really, really highly of this show in particular. This was his introduction to Superman. Um, quite a number of other creators. We, we have uh, an interview with the uh, first ever Irish uh, Superman artist who depicted uh, John Kent saving Dublin, which is where I'm from, uh, for the first time ever in a comic book. Superman comes to Dublin and uh, and does a super save in Dublin. So we have an interview with Kean Tormey coming up very soon. Very excited about that. And we're, we're on all the social medias as well. Facebook, Twitter, uh, Instagram. Uh, so, so definitely check us out there. Very cool. Well, I hope that everyone will do that. Thank you again, Rob. Thank you, audience. I always appreciate you tuning in. Make sure that you come back in two weeks for our next all-new episode, Adventures Await. Thank you to all members of my Patreon community for supporting this podcast. If you like what you hear and are not a member yet, please consider signing up today at patreon.com slash anthonydesiato. We offer a variety of monthly reward tiers, and discounted annual memberships are available too. Beginning at the $1 level, you can listen to Digging for Justice, my exclusive DC Movie Rewatch podcast. Click the link in the show notes for more. If you're looking for other ways to support the show, leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcast goes a long way and only takes a second. You're also welcome to join the conversation on social media via the links in the show notes. Last but not least, we are an affiliate of BCW Supplies, so the next time you need to restock on comic book bags, boards, boxes, and more, be sure to use promo code FSP to save 10% on your order. That's FSP for Flat Squirrel Productions. It helps support the show too. Thank you.